Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guests are Daniel Levine and Dan Mayer. They are the co-authors of A Rare Breed, How People and Perseverance Built Biomarin into One of the World's Most Innovative Companies. These two made for a good tag team. Levine, the gravelly-voiced guy you'll hear from, is a veteran biotech journalist. He knows the ingredients of a good story and knows how to write clean and clear. Mayer, or should I say Mar, if I get my Irish pronunciation right, spent more than a decade of his career at Biomarin Pharmaceuticals. He knew where a lot of the bodies were buried and conducted more than 100 interviews with former and current employees to uncover much more of the company history than even he knew. The legwork shows. This is a deeply researched book, but also a fast-moving, briskly-paced story that doesn't get bogged down in too much unnecessary, insidery detail. I reviewed the book on Timmerman Report in October. Even though it's a corporate-sponsored effort, and these kind of things tend to be lackluster and airbrushed at best, I believe that a rare breed is worth reading and thinking about. It provides a revealing perspective on the rare disease drug development business, especially some of the subtler, underappreciated aspects of what makes a biotech company succeed or fail. It's worth checking out on Amazon as a gift for the biotech bibliophile in your circle. Now quick, before diving into this conversation, I want to thank the sponsors of The Long Run. The Biotech Showcase, co-organized by EBD Group, is coming up January 8th to 10 in San Francisco. Listeners of this podcast can get a $200 discount when registering. Just type in Long Run, all one word, as the registration code when you get your pass for the Biotech Showcase. Now I want to thank the newest sponsor of the show, Presage Biosciences. This company has a micro-injector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Last thing, Bob Moore, a veteran biotech venture capitalist at Alta Partners, joined me for the next episode of The Long Run. We talk about how the industry has evolved since he got started in the 1980s, how he approaches the job of being a biotech venture capitalist, and what areas he thinks are ripe for future investment. Now, join me and Daniel Levine and Dan Mayer for The Long Run. Welcome to The Long Run Podcast. Uh, Today with me, I have Danny Levine and Dan Mayer. Uh, They are the co-authors of A Rare Breed, and this is a book of the corporate history of Biomarin Pharmaceuticals. Um, so now listeners uh, of this show know that I don't, uh, usually have two people on at once. So, uh, I'll, I think you guys will, uh, will be uh, guinea pigs uh, in a sense. Uh, but, uh, you have different sounding voices, so that's good. Uh, we'll be able to tell who's, who's speaking to different parts of the book. Um, but, uh, just to get started, um, I, I thought it would be helpful for listeners who haven't read the book. Um, I have read the book. And uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I reviewed it on Timberman Report. I, I don't um, usually read corporate history books because uh, I find them to be kind of self-serving or coffee table books that kind of gloss over a lot of the, the nitty gritty real stories of how companies came to be and came to be successful or, or overcame their challenges. Uh, but I think this book is, is different. Uh, it's, it's special, really, in that it, uh, it goes to significant lengths to chronicle the the early days of Biomarin and and um, its uh, twists and turns along the way to becoming what it is, um, a diversified, um, successful, independent biotech company devoted to rare disease. So uh, how, I mean, before we get into like what you found and, and the real story here, um, how did this project get started? Maybe Dan Mayer, you could take this one. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I I had decided uh, after 35 years in biotech um, and 12 plus years at Biomarin uh, that that I wanted to retire, and it was about time. And so I sat down with uh, John Jacques, the NMA JJ, we call him, our CEO, uh, at the end of 15, 
and uh, told him I'm going to retire. And I'm not sure when, but I just wanted to give him, you know, an early heads up so we could figure out, um, you know, what the transition should look like, all that stuff. And long story short, he asked me before I left if I would uh, uh, write the history of Biomarin. Now, Dan, uh, you and at I, this uh, time had about 13 years of experience, and you were this, at the end yeah. uh, senior vice president of corporate development. Is that right? Uh, product development. Okay. Yeah. So uh, running running all of the different programs uh, and, you know, all the leaders of the teams and all that stuff and portfolio strategy and so on. So you had um, a lot of experience, so yeah, a lot of the history here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I started in uh, 03. Um, it was seven years actually later than when it was founded. So I didn't have the complete history, but I, I paid attention to all the stuff all over the years. And, and, uh, and I think that's why JJ figured out, you know, quickly that if I were to, uh, you know, eventually leave, uh, much of the history would leave with me, at least the stuff that I knew. So, so I said, yeah, I'd love to. I just didn't quite figure out how I was going to do it just yet. I said, let me come back to you next week and kind of talk to you about what I think we should do. So, uh, he put me in touch with Deborah Charlesworth, who's our uh, VP of corporate, corporate communications. Said, "Why don't you sit down with Deborah and figure figure out what you want to do?" So, so I did that. Okay. And so, how did uh, you uh, get going on this project? You, you started um, interviewing people, right? I did. I did. Um, what I decided to do was to make it uh, not just my story. I mean, I had spent my first uh, 12 years at Genentech in the early days, and, and I read all of the, um, the, the history books uh, on Amazon that referred to Genentech, and um, one rang true. The one that rang true was really a transcription of an interview with uh, Bob Swanson or, uh, and his view of the first 20 years at Genentech. And, and that was the only one that really rang true for lots of reasons, not the least of which was, you know, he was arguably one of the founders, if not the founder of uh, biotechnology with uh, Boyer. But that gave me a hint. I said, I, that's what I'll do is I'll, I'll interview everyone, um, former and current that I still know or know of, um, and then I'll also spend some time trying to hunt down all the original founders and board members and the first CEO and the second CEO hired me and so on and so forth. So, so I went off on a, actually a total of a two year journey to do the interviewing. Um, and then, and then Deborah introduced me to Danny. Now there were more than a hundred people had. that you interviewed, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have over 150 hours of audio. Um, it was all transcribed because that was the basis for which Danny and I could both speak to and decide how to, um, you know, piece together the, the, the stories in the book and so on and so forth. Now, how did uh, Danny, Danny, you're a veteran biotech journalist. Um, you're on your own now. Um, how did you come to this project? Well, I have known Deborah Charlesworth for, for a while, and she called me in to sit down with her and Dan, and, and you know, we talked about doing the project, and it not only intrigued me because I, I do a lot of work in the rare disease space, but but also because there was a, a commitment to telling uh, an unvarnished tale. That, as you had mentioned earlier, the intent was not to do a, a coffee table book, but a but a true history of the company. Yeah, and this is this is rare. I mean, to use a bad pun, <laughs> we don't we don't get a lot of these in biotech. Um, so I, I'll just share with uh, I'm guessing many listeners have not had a chance to get this yet. The book is still pretty new. It is available on Amazon. But there was one passage that I uh, pulled out that I think was kind of a a, a guiding uh, statement of purpose. Uh, you guys wrote that few companies ever succeed in getting a drug to market even fewer are able to achieve that milestone again and again. One of the questions that we set out to answer in writing this book is what accounts for Biomarin's success? 
And in answering this question, we also wanted to see whether it pointed to ways to continue that success or allow others to replicate it. So I think a lot of people in biotech would say, wow, um, <laughs> that's, uh, we'd kind of like to know that too. So uh, tell me about what, what you learned. What did you find in the course of, of reporting out this book? I think there were a number of things. Um, I, I think, as we've discussed before, there were decisions made along the way that had great ramifications for the company being able to control its own destiny. Uh, this was both time and again with building out uh, a great competency in manufacturing. Uh, it was something they, they fought with early on with their partner Genzyme when they commercialized their first drug. And I think that's really been a strength. And if you look at even the New York Times yesterday talking about the roadblocks to gene therapy and the struggle companies are having with getting viral vectors to bring new gene therapies to the market, you know, this is something that Biomarin has addressed through building its own internal capabilities for doing this. Um, I, I think the the second thing is is the sheer longevity as an independent company, which in part is a credit to their ability to not be just a, a an R and D shop for for bigger companies, but to really bring a company bring bring a product all the way from discovery to market. And, and then I think the third which is the, the harder thing to get your, your arms around is, is the culture. And I think that culture uh, wasn't always there. I think it grew out of crisis, uh, much to the credit of, of a team of people like Dan, who when uh, one CEO was ousted and, and things were in dire straits, they, they all really pulled together and, and found a common purpose in, in focusing on, on rare diseases. And then JJ coming along and embracing, uh, focusing on, on what you do well and really um, creating a culture where science was, was valued, where um, people had the opportunity to contribute and feel like they had the opportunity to make contributions and, and really um, a, a motivation that was much deeper than, than just building a successful company, but really having a, a very close relationship with the patient populations that they served. Now, there's a lot to pull apart here that I think are, are subtle aspects of the business that don't get a lot of public attention. Um, you know, when you talk about manufacturing and the importance of really uh, developing that expertise and also the culture parts, these are just uh, harder to evaluate on the outside. You know, in biotech, we tend to evaluate the the clinical trial data, the randomized controlled data that's presented at a medical meeting, or maybe the big uh, business development master stroke, you know, and those things matter a lot, but um, it's it's only part of the puzzle. And, and you guys, I think, do a really nice job of of explaining those um, underappreciated and subtler aspects. But um, but Dan, I, I mean, let, let's let's actually talk through some of the the narrative here, how this company got. Uh, established, got uh, got going. I mean, it was really uh, this this initial product, Aldurazyme for uh, MPS six. Um, what, and what happened there, Dan? Do you want to take that one? Sure, sure. I mean, I might step back a little uh, earlier than that, Luke, and describe this one just to be just to be clear. Oh, MPS. Yeah. I'm sorry. Which one? MPS one. Oh, I'm sorry. I mix that up. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Um, but the the real genesis of of um, Biomarin was a smaller company called Glyca, and that was founded by several people. Um, but the one I want to call out is 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 Gwen Williams. Gwen was is a serial entrepreneur. He was a, a founder of Soma, the fourth biotech company ever. Um, and he's a, a trained physicist. He was head of tax at Arthur Young. He just has a pedigree that is absolutely amazing. He actually was co-inventor with John Clock, who was the first 
uh, CMO of Biomarin uh, for the quick AIDS test, which is still in use today in Africa. So there's a really a wonderful scientific legacy of our founders there. And they formed, Gwen's idea was to form a company that could measure carbohydrates because he had read several papers and uh, worked with a, a scientist at Oxford and became very intrigued with the implications of the fine study of carbohydrate chemistries that led to glycomed, which he also founded, um, where John Clock also worked. Long story short, um, they started a small company measuring carbohydrate chemistries um, uh, in Novato, right around the corner from what would be the first first building for Biomarin, the so-called Paint Palace. And what all of that led to was the realization that they needed to extend from measuring carbohydrates into therapeutic areas related to carbohydrate chemistry. So that was the basis of the science. They did a long search and found a paper um, uh, in TNAS in 94 where uh, Emil Kakis, uh, a physician researcher at UCLA Harbor, along with Liz Neufeld, um, characterized um, uh, the NPS1 disorder and um, the, the enzyme and the carbohydrate chemistry that um, uh, characterized the disease. And then they published in that paper initial dog study results. Gwen found that paper. Um, they uh, arranged meetings quickly, John Clock and Chris Starr with... Uh, with Emil and Liz, and then eventually that led to uh, a partnership, and Emil came on board at Biomarin uh, shortly thereafter, um, and that led to the first product opportunity ever in therapeutics, and by this time, Biomarin had um, been purchased by uh, Glyco, and later that the tide was turned, but that was really the whole story of the genesis of the of the first product. So this would have been the late 1990s. Um, biotech is uh, beginning to be uh, on the upswing. Uh, the Human Genome Project was in the news. Um, you know, the stock market was doing pretty well. Um, and at the time, I mean, Genzyme had uh, had had some success with uh, rare disease enzyme replacement therapy. Um, so you could make these these things recombinantly um, if you had a, a single single gene disorder certain rare diseases. So, I mean, this was, this, this looked like something possible to, to the entrepreneurs, to the investors, uh, right? Exactly. exactly correct. And it was very important, uh, to, uh, to, to Gwen and Grant Dennison, who was then now the first CEO and John Clock to seek out a partner. And of course the first logical partner was Genzyme. And, um, truth be told, Genzyme actually turned down um, uh, various appro- uh, approaches to them multiple times before uh, before finally John and Chris Starr and Grant Dennison uh, came upon an idea, which was to uh, video uh, small numbers of patients in, in the very first clinical trial that uh, I'll call it a phase one, two, um, where where patients were being treated. And over a six-month period, you could see uh, various improvements in endurance and mobility and range of motion. You know, the very standard things that uh, back then were not so standard were sort of the new ideas on how to approach these very, very complex single-gene diseases. And um, long story short, uh, they took that video to Genzyme finally, and Henry Tamir um, and his team saw it and uh, and Henry said, "Okay, we're going to do this. Uh, let's let's go to work." And so uh, that led to a deal. And uh, and to this day, uh, those that know of the story call it the thirty million dollar video because that's what actually uh, made the deal happen. And then it also allowed Biomarin to have a credible larger partner, and then proceed to go public, which was the IPO. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I love how you bring in some of these telling details of the story, like the $30 million video or the Pink Palace. Uh, another one that uh, I enjoyed was the Quonset Hut um, that was set up. Uh, for those yeah. unfamiliar, these were these were kind of primitive uh, World War II style uh, simple huts that, uh, I don't know, Emil Kakis and his team at UCLA somehow uh, obtained one of these on a shoestring budget so they could make small quantities of what became aldurazine for clinical trials. Um, it's, it's sort of like a classic, uh, you know, scrappy startup story yeah. in some parts. Exactly. Yeah, so um, now this is also where patients enter the story. Um, you guys uh, found uh, the, uh, a boy named Ryan Dant, I believe was his name. Um, his, uh, his dad um, became a, a very avid patient advocate, um, flying around the world, meeting researchers, coming into contact with uh, Emil Kakis and colleagues. Um, how, what, um, what did you learn about um, you know, really the fundamentals of the business and how like sort of the die was cast for Biomarin to become a rare disease company in those days? I think what was really important uh, getting to not only the patient piece, but uh, establishing the culture at Biomarin, which we talked alluded to earlier, was um, the extreme significance of what I loosely called personalized medicine. It was very personal uh, to everyone uh, at the early days of Biomarin, and, and I'll say still to this day, that um, you personalize uh, the work that you do because it, it'll lead to helping treat patients. And back then, uh, Mark Dan, Ryan's dad, um, and mom, Jean, um, the very first thing they did was uh, when they had their son diagnosed, um, and remember, this was back in the early 90s, um, was to try and figure out what are we going to do, and they couldn't find anyone interested in in treating the disease. Ultimately, they um, they heard of um, uh, Liz Neufeld and Emil Kakis um, at one of the meetings, scientific medical meetings they had uh, you know, funded themselves to go to to learn more about the disease. And that led to a relationship with, between Mark and Jane and Ryan and, and Emil. And, and Emil um, was very, very important to the first 10 years of Biomarin. It was he who, uh, both as a physician and a scientist, um, made the original um, idea happen for Loranidase or Alterazyme. And, and he's a passionate, passionate, physician scientist, and it was all about um, figuring out how to make enough enzyme both to study first in dogs and then to treat initial patients, and there was nothing in the world that was going to stop uh, this man from getting that done, and and his partner uh, was the was the Dan family, his, and, and they, they did a bake sale to raise the initial funding for uh, for Emil in his lab, uh, and just to buy some basic materials. So that spawned then, you know, um, uh, the Biomarin passion and focus on getting to what's important first, cutting away all the uh, extraneous BS, and just figuring out how to get something done. And and a lot of that's due to Emil and uh, and his passion for patients. Biotech Showcase is coming up January 8 to 10 in San Francisco's Union Square. Listeners of this show are welcome to take a $200 discount off registration. Just type in long run, all one word, as the registration code when you're checking out. Thanks to EBD Group for sponsoring the long run. And have you heard of Presage Biosciences? This company has a micro-injector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor. It's in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. How much money did it take to get across that finish line to really get that 
that drug in the vial? The drug in the vial and approved about a hundred, hundred ten million dollars is the number I recall. So the, in terms of today's there's dollars, there, uh, there's one point I just don't want to gloss over. If if you go back to Mark Dent, because it's such a such an important point in the rare disease space. You, you've got a father who is essentially a cop, not in the science world. And he's got what he thinks is a healthy three-year-old that he suddenly finds out has this horrendous genetic disease. And he's told the kid is going to die by the time he's 10 or at most 12. So he's racing against the clock. And as he goes out into this world of drug discovery and drug development, he, he finds out it's going to take 10 to 15 years to, to get a drug into the marketplace. And this is a reality that rare disease patients face every day, that their diseases often progress far faster than science and far faster than the regulatory world. And, you know, one of the great successes of Biomarin has really been the speed at which it has been able to move drugs through that process, particularly in in the development phase where on average it's something like five years. Is that right, Dan? I mean it, it is one of the I'm fastest in, yeah. companies. It is one of the yeah. fastest companies at moving drugs from through the clinic to, to approval. And part of that is attributable to the fact that this was personal. Like that with a small indication such as this, you actually get to know some of the patients. And it's no longer, um, you know, an academic curiosity, you know, to get another paper on your CV or, or even that next round of funding. The next round of funding or, or going IPO, that, those are steps along the way. But this, this company developed that kind of laser focus on getting, it, getting that drug uh, across the FDA finish line. You know, there's a, there's a story in there with Chuck O'Neill, I think, who's the, the VP of Pharmaceutical Sciences, where... I think it was after Vimazin was approved, uh, Paul Harmitz, who was the principal investigator, had brought over some patients for a, a celebration they were having at the company. And, you know, at the time, O'Neill had said he expected to be at Biomarin for three or four years. Um, and he was introduced to, to one of the patients, this little girl, who took his hand and wouldn't let go and thanked him for creating this drug. Excuse me. Um, and it's and Chuck a, is, uh, the, Chuck, the impact Chuck it has on <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he has never left the company, and that, that experience still stays with him. Well, it's a powerful, uh, motivating experience when you meet uh, a young boy or girl um, with a, a fatal disease um, that's in progressive decline, and you realize, gee, if we could... If we can run through the clinical trials uh, with this enzyme replacement, we can we can make a difference for them. I mean, that's the kind of thing that gets people to stay late, come in on the weekend if they have to. Um, it, it's a strong sense of purpose. But now, uh, Biomarin didn't always have such a clear uh, direction or sense of purpose. It, it wandered at times uh, and, and had, uh, I think, more than one near-death experience. Um, how, can you... Uh, Maybe, Dan, you want to take that one on in terms of what happened w- after, say, the, the first few years and, and that initial taste of success with Aldorazine. Right, right. Um, once uh, once Aldorazine was off and running, um, the relationship was tenuous uh, at best because Genzyme was the uh, um, the bigger company, Biomer in the smaller company, and lots of tensions, lots of issues. Um I oversaw all that uh, from the day one and when I got there. But the CEO at the time, uh, Fred Price, was uh, the second CEO after Grant Dennison left the company. And Fred was uh, a tough individual. Let's back up real quick on, on Grant yeah. Dennison. So he was the CEO for the first few years, sure. I mean, through late 90s through early 2000s. Um, and, and what happened under his leadership? Well, Grant, um, Grant was a, a CEO and absentee, quite frankly, um, very, very, uh, smart individual, um, pedigree in big pharma, uh, Pfizer specifically. And, um, and Grant had a drinking problem 
And so in reality, Grant wasn't around all that much. Um, but his uh, CFO, uh, William Anderson, was the de facto go-to guy if anybody had questions or wanted to talk about a particular strategy, so on and so forth. And, um, and, and, and Bill Anderson had uh, the tacit approval of Grant to, to sort of be his, his eyes and ears. Um, Is this Bill Anderson now, was, now at Genentech? No, a different Bill Anderson. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, um, it's worth noting that there was a lot of tension between senior management, particularly between, between two people that kind of had overlapping responsibilities for drug development. And that tension worked you know, often had the company working at cross purposes. Well, there were um, there there was a power vacuum, a leadership vacuum in some respect, and and uh, that created competing factions, right? Exactly, exactly. And and, and Grant um, Grant had brought Fred in, Fred Price in, um, um, as a consultant because um, with the Alderazyme Genzyme story, one of the key areas of tensions was Genzyme wanted to take over manufacturing and we wouldn't let them. And it was a big fight. And Grant had worn out his uh, goodwill with Henry over the matter. And, um, and he couldn't really negotiate or be positive with Genzyme, nor, nor would Genzyme be positive with him. So we brought Fred in to sort of arbitrate the negotiations or the dilemma that we found ourselves in. And so that's how Fred got exposed to uh, to BioMarin and its story. And he's and Fred was also at Pfizer. Uh, they worked together, as I think I mentioned. And um, that led, once Grant was fired uh, because of his uh, personal problem, it led to an, an opening for uh, Fred, and the board um, asked him to be the next CEO. And there's some several stories in the book that relate to that, but... But Fred came in and brought, um, got rid of the vacuum. I mean, there was no question that Fred was in charge, large and in charge, and um, and that He's a big also guy. squared away. He's a big guy, uh, very intimidating. Um, led to um, an intimidating physical presence and intellectual presence. He was, he is a strong leader, um, and and it was. Um, it was an eye-opening experience, I'll say, for Biomarin to, to, to now have Fred on board and um, helping us uh, or directing us or telling us what to do. <laughs> and so that, that was a whole new, um, whole new breath of ammonia salts, I'll say. And, uh, and for Fred, to his credit, it did transform the business, raised a lot of money, focused the company. Um, but that led, as you asked about, Luke, to um, a couple of um, uh, almost near-death experiences, the first of which was um, uh, Orpred, where Fred uh, was hell-bent to purchase a, um, a uh, sales force because Naglazyme was in our near future, uh, the second MPS disorder for MPS-6 that we wanted to treat, and we needed a, a U.S. field force. Um, and he also needed cash flow. And so he bought a, um, a franchise from a company called Metasys. And Orpred was a, um, um, an oral prednisolone sulfate, grape flavored asthma medicine for children. And, and a 72 person sales force came with it. Long story short, um, the product went generic within months after, um, almost using up all of our cash to purchase the franchise. And, and the bottom fell out on pricing as what, as, 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 as you would expect. And, um, and that led um, then with a couple other issues to some very, very serious introspection on whether or not we could survive. Um, there were, it was there very, were also, very bad. There were some accounting issues going on there with Oropred, like maybe some inventory stuffing of, of some kind that made it look like it was selling a little better or had a better trajectory um, than, right. than it actually had. Um, but it's also a fundamentally different kind of product than the ones that you know you're talking about with Aldurazyme, Naglazyme. I mean, these were 
kind of treatments that uh, did not exist. There were no alternatives. And these were life-altering, potentially, therapies. Whereas, uh, you know, a grape-flavored cough medicine for asthma, uh, that's uh, more of a mass market type indication, more of an incremental sort of benefit. How did that fit into the culture that was already um, pretty well established a few years in? Well, it didn't fit into the culture. But, you know, the, the thing about Fred was he was never embracing the rare disease business model that what his marching order to his team was time and again to go out and find him blockbusters and to bring those into the company. So while they were doing the, the Arapred deal, you know, they had also purchased a, a, a molecule that they thought had potential for being a, a very large indication for cardiovascular surgeries. Um, This is part of the. And that was uh, called. Well, go ahead, Dan. No, I was going to say that was uh, that was a, another example of an Orapred-like product, which was, you know, something that was out of our wheelhouse, something that we didn't do, and frankly, weren't experienced enough to do it uh, well. And you know, those those were some near death blows that that really almost. Um, ensured that there would be no bomber in ever. And, uh, and part of the neat story in the book is sort of weaving the thread of how, how we managed to live and fight another day there. Um, but between those two products, I'll say, Luke, um, you know, and what happened there, the Neutralase was killed over a weekend because of uh, a, a data safety monitoring board uh, meeting in, in Chicago where um, – where, the, where it was called a feudal. In other words, it would never show a statistically significant difference between the arms. And, um, and, and Fred killed it. Ironically, um, Emil was not part of the decision, um, nor Chris Starr, um, who were both the scientific leaders uh, under Fred at the time at the company. Uh, Stu Sweedler understood all the ramifications. He was the head of clinical. And... Um, and Fred killed it uh, on the weekend. I remember Emil calling me up at midnight on a Saturday night and said, well, you know the product that you're starting a whole new team up for and that we're ready to ramp up and complete phase three trials and spend a lot more money? Well, we just killed it. What I want you to do uh, on Monday morning is to take the whole team aside, tell them what happened, uh, then we'll tell the whole company right after that. And I want you to do a new product. It's called uh, Phenoptin. It's the one that's in license that um, that Dan Oppenheimer and I just worked through. And that eventually led to a product called Kuvan, by the way. That, that so, hurts. I mean, that, so, that's kind of a uh, gut punch you just yeah, took there. And, and there's not a lot of time to dwell on it. <laughs> You've got to turn the page quickly. Exactly. Cash was running it, low it, at this point, right? On it and it, oh, yeah. Big time. Big time. And then, and then Fred was let go by the board. Um, lots of drama and everything, but long story short, he was let go. And there was this um, nine-month um, void of leadership uh, yet again. And, and that's what I think um, Danny referred to earlier was, you know, what do we do now? I think the long story short and the lesson that I'll uh, put forth was um, – this allowed us to reset and get back to what we knew how to do, which was to study, develop, make enzymes for ultra rare diseases in the MPS space. And, and we got back to that. Um, and we got back to a few other things, like I mentioned, Kuvan and so forth. So this was an opportunity to reset and, um, you know, it was difficult with the first two CEOs. We almost didn't survive for various reasons, as I described. But but this uh, nine-month walk in the desert allowed us, um, thankfully, to set a new course, which was back to what we knew how to do. Well, I think you got this experience throws into sharp relief the uh, kind of the fundamentally different um, business models at work. I mean, there is the rare disease business model, 
which is uh, by definition, it's low volume, high impact. Well, it, it better be high impact for the small number of patients you address. Um, or you can go in a, a large volume kind of business, a more primary care mass market type of indication. Sometimes those can be high impact as well, but don't not always. There, there can be some me tooism there. Um, and you kind of have to choose um, what, what kind of company you are um, and then organize yourself accordingly. Um, so that's that's what happened here after Fred Price left, right? Exactly. Um, so when does JJ Bienname enter the picture? Well, JJ came on board after after Fred, but there was that nine month gap. So when when JJ came on board, it was right before Naglozyme. I think it was the the week Naglozyme got approved. Um, he he walked into having to make a go no go on a, a partnership deal for twenty five million dollars, which he didn't have a lot of time or choice on because the company needed the money. Um, and he also came up to a decision on how the company was going to address the global sales for, for that drug. Um, they had been in late stage negotiations with, with Genzyme over a, a partnership. Um, it was a, you know, Naglozyme was for, for MPS6, which is a market that was believed to be about half as big as MPS-1, and Genzyme um, knew that that um, Biomarin was not in, in much of a, a negotiating point and, you know, was really shoving a deal down their throat that, that no one wanted. Um, and I think one of the, the early things that JJ did that really shaped what this company is today was make the decision to go it alone and build their own global sales force. And how much money did did you have? Did Biomarin have at that point? Well, before they did the 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 deal with um, with Merck Serrano, um, which gave them twenty five million dollars, they were down to to probably less than two months cash. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were uh, we were on the verge of not being able to pass an outside audit as a going concern. And then, okay, you get some, a lifeline here, a bit of a runway with twenty five million from uh, from a partner, and and then the, the, a gutsy decision is made to walk away from a partnership with Genzyme because the terms just aren't aren't satisfactory. Essentially, you're not bargaining from a position of strength, so you'll just have to walk away and, and figure out how to do it yourself. Exactly. And, um, and that was very interesting time. I mean, I was, I was uh, still the, the, the executive in charge of the relationship with Genzyme. I'll never forget the day where um, it was due to be our final negotiation session. Genzyme came out uh, to us, um, even uh, their president uh, of the business, David Meeker, um, who I believe is still very much a key part of uh, running uh, Genzyme Sanofi. Um, oh, he's actually a yeah. Oh, has he? Okay, yeah. yeah. He's been there a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and, and what happened was, um, interestingly, Genzyme was still – you know, playing games with us. They didn't send us their latest red, red line version of the agreement draft. Um, like you usually do customarily with potential partners, you send it to them a day or two in advance so they can read it. Then you show up and they negotiate and you see where you are. They didn't even send it to us. They, they basically provided it to us when they arrived. And we just reviewed the key, um, back and forth red line items. And it was, it was really a deal terms set that was terrible and took advantage of us. It was, it was something on the basis of our relationship with Alderazine that we really, really um, knew it would be bad if we went ahead. And we went in and we sat down with JJ, um, leaving Genzyme in the room and, and gave him 
you know, the, the news. And we said, this is as good as it's going to get. And it was pretty bad. And he said, okay, go tell them no. And, uh, and we'll figure out what to do. And, uh, we walked back in the room and told him, um, that, uh, the deal negotiations are over. We're not going to go forward. Uh, thank you for coming. And I'll never forget the looks on their face. They were, they were quite surprised because they figured, um, they had us over a barrel because we had no infrastructure at all, uh, outside the U S and very little in the U S even. So JJ's, uh, you know, I told JJ this and I, I tell everybody uh, when they want to know that was maybe one of the top, handful of decisions that allowed uh, Bomberin to be here today was JJ saying, okay, we're going to do this on our own. And uh, that, that had the effect of being time, quite a, a clarifying um, uh, directive, right? Because at that point now you've got, well, you've got so much cash in the bank, you've got enough time to, you know, execute, to go all in on manufacturing, sales and marketing, uh, whatever you've got to do to make uh, that next product. It was Neglazyme, right? Um, you you had was. to make that thing. You, you had whole ownership of it, and you it, it was do or die. Pretty much. Um, and in hindsight, looking back, you know, it allowed us to build um, our, our worldwide infrastructure um, and uh, to rival anyone, frankly, in the rare disease space. And... Um, and then the other products approved since Vimazim comes to mind, you know, it was, it was basically plug and play. We had the relationships, the regulatory relationships, the quality relationships, the physician relationships, the, the, um, the infrastructure for commercial supply and delivery. It, it all was there and it, it really made the, uh, new products in our future, um, an even faster uh, commercial launch uptake than, than was Nagelzyme, which was frankly very, very slow because um, we had to start from scratch. And in that case, with those subsequent products, you would no longer be uh, in a position of being at the mercy of a Genzyme where, where somebody could put you over a barrel. That really couldn't happen because you had all those things that you just mentioned in place already. You could do a deal on your exactly. own terms if you wanted to. Correct. Um, so you guys, um, I, I know JJ um, uh, got behind this project early on, and I, I haven't asked him. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you have, you know, what he hoped to accomplish with uh, commissioning this book. Um, you wanted to, I, I think, um, sort of, codify the culture, sort of pass down some of those, um, those lessons the, the, uh, of what worked and what didn't so that hopefully people can uh, learn from them and, uh, and, and, you know, make wise decisions in the future. Um, you also, it's a, it's a big company now. Um, so not everybody knows, uh, how Biomarin came to be. Uh, what, what kind of, um, uh, what kind of feedback have you gotten from various people who've had a chance to read it at this point, whether they're old timers or, or some of the new employees? Luke, just to, just to emphasize a point there, you know, what, one of the things that I think biotechs often face is becoming victims of their own success. And if you look at the growth of Biomarin and the number of products that have ramped up in recent years, they now have more than half their staff that's been there less than three years, which is kind of astounding to think about. So I think one of the things in, in, in telling the story is to really make people who are new to the company feel a part of this, this history and tradition that they've established. Um, but Biomarin's, I think, fairly unusual also in not kind of wearing its culture on its sleeve. Um, the, and, and Dan, maybe you can speak to this, but there's a, there's a very intentional effort not to, you know, kind of put the mission statement on your forehead. Right, come back right. To that. Um, oh, go ahead, Dan. 
Yeah. No, I was going to say that that's very, very true. Maybe that came from Fred Price, a little story that is not in the book, but is in the film that complements the book is, um, is Fred basically wanted to have a mission statement established way back under his uh, tenure. And, um, and he basically took the Pfizer mission statement and value statement and put Baumann's name on the top, handed out to the executives and said, I want this to be our new mission statement. Then Robert Boffey, who's a, uh, uh, an executive vice president still to this day, one of the longest tenured uh, employees um, of Baumann, uh, he, he called Fred out and, um, and, and suffered for it. But I think that really helped establish the fact that we don't want to write any of this down. We'd rather just uh, live it and lead by example and so on and so forth. Um, and Luke, to your question, um, what are the things that I've learned and what are some of the feedback? I mean, one of the interesting things when I set off on all my interviews with, uh, especially with current longtime employees, um, I always ask them at the end, I said, why are you still here? I, I, I really want, wanted to know because many of them have been here 16, 17, 18, 19 years, almost the full 20. And, um, what I expected was a reference to, you know, our passion for patients. Um, you know, because that's, that's an overused term and all, and many, many companies, so on and so forth. We, we really do live it, I believe. And I expected employees to say that first. And amazingly to me, which was a key learning and perhaps speaks to the unique nature of our culture was, um, was that was not the first answer. They all said in one form or another, I'm still here um, because of the people, because I, I, I don't want to let them down. And of course they don't want to let them down in the context of drug development and, and getting medicines to patients. But that was revealing mean, to me. Your, your colleagues, your coworkers, um, the people in your department or, or you know, people at your level in other departments that you work with that you see every day. Um, it's not always the the CEO either, <laughs> uh, even though like they do set culture and direction, and that's very important. But it's um, yeah, it's that that harder thing to that that, that more intangible thing. To, it's hard to put your finger on that culture, uh, that way of right. working. That, and yeah, culture. if your if your direct boss or you, is a is a bad guy or a jerk, I mean it's you know it's very easy to just you know walk out the door and find another job. Well, many, many of the long-term employees and scientists lived through the Fred era and, and, se and several executives as well. Um, but it really spoke to that, you know, despite um, problems at the top in the past, um, they all came to work for each other. Um, it's like a, you know, the analogy of a, you know, Super Bowl team or NBA champion, you know, any, any, any sense of true team that you want to offer up, and there are many examples, that really, really is an important aspect. Um, and you can't, in my experience, you can't really uh, snap your fingers and say, okay, you're a team. You, ha you have to become one. And um, that's one of the secrets. I know it's maybe disappointing to people who really want to know a secret and say, oh, that's no secret, but Maybe the secret is actually making it happen. Yeah, yeah. And now, Danny, I want to come back to something you said earlier about the uh, biotech companies often becoming a victim of their own success um, as they as they grow and mature. Uh, what were you thinking? What um, some examples, maybe? Well, um, you know, you you can start uh, you, you can start with Genentech, I think, where. It's still a very successful company, but I think it's qualitatively very different uh, a place than it was when folks like Dan were there and it was a, a much smaller biotech. I think that's true for any of the large biotechs. Um, it's very hard to preserve preserve a culture. You know, I think of uh, 
a story where in the early, you know, Genentech was famous for having their their ho-hos, their kind of Friday beer gatherings. And um, someone, uh, a senior scientist there told me a story about going up and introducing herself to to a guy she didn't recognize. It turned out to be Art Levinson, who was the CEO. Um, that kind of tells you how, you know, people begin to become a little anonymous in, in large organizations. And I think with that, you get a, a dissipation on, on the sense of mission that uh, once drove everyone. And by its very nature, a company like BioRen, it's been around 20 years now. Um, that's something that requires constant vigilance. Um, you, you don't want it to decay. You don't want to lose it. You know, it's, it's not only it's not only that it requires constant vigilance, but you now have something that is geographically dispersed with a presence in many different countries. And how do those people all align with with the vision that, you know, is driving the, the folks back home? Hence, I think JJ's uh, ultimate wisdom with uh, wanting the history captured in a book and and as I mentioned, we even have a film that goes with it. So what better way to, to share that um, uh, geographic dispersion and, uh, you know, new employees, most of the company are newer employees, don't really understand where we came from so that they can help make it uh, a better future for all. So that kind of, I think, Luke, is the, is the, is the wisdom in, in both the book and the film. And hopefully it works because um, we're we're getting well within shooting distance of being the size of you know the Genentechs and the Genzymes and the other biotech companies that that struggle with growing. Yeah, I mean Biomarin's got um, gosh I, I forget uh, is it five products on the market and market value of you know, well over ten billion dollars. Well, six with Bernura. Yeah, it's closer uh, to six and fourteen. Something. Like apps yeah. in Europe, and and then you've got you know you've got two products that are very close to to uh, entering the market behind that. Um, but you know, with that becomes another challenge, which is that the types of products that Biomarin can now develop and bring to the market by by the nature of the company need to be larger than the ones. They built themselves on, and that becomes another challenge, particularly in the rare disease space. The law of large numbers kicks in, yeah. um, and and then you you have with, with a small patient population, you've got um, pricing pressures, uh, which was something that you guys didn't really cover in the book. Um, and you know, I, I can understand. There's a lot you have to decide what to include and what not to include. Um, and, you know, maybe someone else wants to take on that question of, uh, you know, what fair pricing looks like with rare diseases. Um, but um, have you guys, um, have you gotten, heard much feedback from outside the company yet? Or I want to come back to this, like what, what kinds of, uh, what, what have people had to say about your work so far? I, I've spoken well on Alfred. Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I'll, I'll, no, I'll, I, you know, I, I think the, the feedback I've gotten, and, and frankly, they've they've been, you know, from a number of people who are not really industry rooted, um, was they were surprised that it had such a strong narrative to it. Um, I think from from folks in the industry, you know, the the feedback I've gotten is that they feel like they really did get a kind of behind the scenes glimpse at how a, a biotech company is built. Yeah, and I um, I do think that is some that's a valuable service and something that um, is too seldom done. You know, the industry it's it's always uh, looking toward the future and uh, doesn't do a great job of recording the past. Um, and uh, I think uh, you know there are lessons to learn there um, that uh, that people can apply in their their day to day lives. So it's a it's a book that I I recommend, um, and uh, I, I just uh, I, I really salute you guys for taking on 
this project. I know it was uh, it probably felt like a labor of love. How many how how much time did this really take you to put together? A couple of years uh, all in. <laughs> and how many rewrites on the manuscript? <laughs> you know, fortunately, I write clean, don't I, Dan? <laughs> Um, it was, you know, uh, I mean, I, I became involved in the project in <laughs> March of 2016, and you know, we we went to press in uh, July of 2017, so something like that. Well, it is uh, um, available, as I said, on Amazon, and uh, Christmas is coming. So I would recommend this for the, the biotech uh, person in your family or even even curious non-scientists. I think the book is written in an accessible form um, for people who you know actually want to understand some of the, the nitty-gritty of, of the pharmaceutical business and what it's about. I think you guys uh, have, have done a good service. So... Thank you very much for being with me uh, here on the Long Run Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to EBD Group and Presage Biosciences for sponsoring The Long Run. Next episode, Bob Moore, a veteran biotech venture capitalist at Alta Partners, join me for the next episode of The Long Run. We talk about how the industry has evolved since he started in the industry in the 1980s, how he approaches the job of being a biotech VC, and what areas he thinks are ripe for future investment. Don't miss this upcoming episode of The Long Run.